Welcome to The Collective Tap, conversations about water. I'm your host, Taylor Bennett. Our first season is titled The Spigot. It focuses on the water that comes into our homes and the ways we use it. Join us as our field host, Taz Walters and Devin Dabney, talk with experts about what exactly is in our water, the real cost of a green lawn, how water-related issues impact our health, and the affordability of this basic resource. In this episode, we talk with Bill Weeks, a clinical professor emeritus at the Indiana University Mauer School of Law, Dr. Indra Frank with the Hoosier Environmental Council, and Dan Moran with Citizens Energy Group. These conversations focus on the state of the waters that supply many Hoosiers drinking water. This year is the 50th anniversary of the Clean Water Act, and yet, according to a new report from the Environmental Integrity Project, Indiana's waters rank among the worst in the nation, with more than 25,000 stream miles unfit for recreation and swimming, more than any other state. What are the main causes of Indiana's water pollution? How can they impact our health? And what is being done to ensure safe water is delivered to our homes? We begin with Bill Weeks, who founded the Conservation Law Center in Bloomington, Indiana in 2005. He also helped author a 2017 report on modernizing Indiana's approach to managing its water resources. My name is Bill Weeks, and I'm a clinical professor emeritus at the Indiana University Maurer School of Law. I came to Indiana and founded the Conservation Law Center in conjunction with the law school in 2005. And I was the first director, and I remained the director for 15 years after that. I'm still the chairman of the board of the Conservation Law Center. Continue to be vitally interested in its work. Its work, of course, has included in the last seven years a very significant emphasis on water and water quality in Indiana. And I I retain that interest, of course. The study that the Conservation Law Center recently did, I'm curious if you can talk a little bit more about what you found and, and what was interesting to you. Yeah, there's a lot to say about this issue. And you've asked about the quality of water in Indiana, and that's a vital thing, a vital interest to everybody. But maybe the first question is, what about water in Indiana? What's the state of water in Indiana? And I want to start by just saying this. Indiana is, by almost any measure across the world, a very well-watered state. If you were an economist, you would say Indiana's freshwater resource ought to be a significant comparative advantage for Indiana's economy in in relation to almost anywhere. So one thing that people need to do if they're thinking about water in Indiana is understand it's one of the best things about Indiana. Now, having said that, we haven't treated our water very well. Historically, we treated it like the rest of the country so poorly that the United States finally came up with a thing called the Clean Water Act that was designed to slow, not stop, Well, actually, the truth is it was designed to stop pollution into waters of the United States. It was supposed to stop pollution into the waters of the United States within about 10 years of the passage of that law. It didn't. But it has significantly slowed our pollution. So having said that, we now get to the sort of specifics of your question. What's in our water? First, E. coli, which is a bacterial contaminant that comes from fecal matter of humans and animals. It's the most common pollutant in Indiana rivers and streams. And how common is it? Well, more than 60% of Indiana's rivers and streams are, are so polluted that they fail to meet the standards that we've set for them. And the most common pollutant is E. coli. The most common source is livestock, but human fecal matter, human wastewater is a significant source. And one reason that it's a significant source is a lot of people, maybe a third of the people in Indiana, have their wastewater treated through septic systems, and a large number of those septic systems are failing. So 
E. coli is a very important pollutant that's in the water of Indiana. It's harmful to us in a lot of ways. We're still a long, long way from cleaning up our water with that problem. The most common pollutants in lakes in Indiana are mercury and PCBs. PCBs is another long-lasting chemical. This chemical was widely used in electric insulators. It's in almost all of our lakes. About 95% of Indiana lakes are so polluted that they don't meet our standards. And the most common pollutants in those are mercury, much of which comes from coal and the deposition of coal, or smoke in the air and the mercury coming to the ground, and PCBs. Those things are very hard to do something about because they're so long-lasting and they're in sediments. But E. coli, we could do something about right now if we wanted to. And we have a significant amount of work to do on that. Sounds like there's a lot of nasty things in our watershed, particularly here in central Indiana with the White River. Can you talk a little bit about what is regulated versus unregulated? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, The Clean Water Act, which I referred to very early on, only deals with pollutants that come essentially sort of out of the end of a pipe. So any place that someone uses water and returns it to the watershed or the ground near the water in a pipe, a discrete conveyance in the words of the law, is regulated by the Clean Water Act, which is both a federal law and an Indiana state law. What we have to do in order to reduce the amount of pollutants that come into water that way is make sure that we're enforcing the law, make sure that we set the right standards and that we enforce them. Now, setting the right standards is a hard thing to do. I mentioned at the start that the goal of the Clean Water Act was to eliminate pollution into the waters of the United States from the ends of those pipes in 10 years. We haven't done it. We haven't done it because it's expensive. And we have lots of things that we want to do that create wastewater. And making that wastewater free of pollutants is so expensive that we still, 50 years after the Clean Water Act, have not done that. So if we set the right limits... And I think, I guess I'm saying we ought to set even lower limits than we've set and enforce them. We can avoid pollution from those pipes. There's another kind of pollution that we call non-point source pollution. This basically means pollution that runs off in a long, in a a wide space, not in a pipe, from a variety of activities on land. Farming and livestock uh, husbandry would be two of the common kinds. Construction is another. Non-point source pollution is not directly regulated. One thing people could do if they want to reduce, this is about 45% of the pollution in in waters of the United States, essentially unregulated in most of the United States. It is not regulated by federal law. One thing people could do is start talking about having some reasonable regulation of the kinds of activities that cause non-point source pollution to go into the Indiana streams and rivers and lakes and begin that process. Some states have done that. Indiana has not done that. It would be a, it is, it will be a very hard pull to get that to happen. But when you consider how much of the pollution that actually is in our waters, and by the way, I said 95% of lakes are pollutant, about 60% or so of Indiana streams and rivers are also polluted and not meeting the standards that we've set, we've set for them, not meeting the uses that we'd like to see them um, be used for, not supporting the wildlife. and and plants we'd like to see them support. So one of the main sources for that kind of pollutant is non-point source pollution. If we want to avoid it, we can either have significant incentives. We've been using incentives in education for 40 years to try to avoid that. It hasn't worked. 
So either we're going to have to put more incentives in or we're going to have to have some reasonable regulation along with some uh, incentives in order to reduce that pollution. Yeah, um, I'm glad you brought up nonpoint pollution because in the study that you all did, the number one source by far, according to this, is nonpoint animal feeding operations. Could you kind of explain what that means? Really, it's funny. If you look at that tw- those 12 sources, this is not an independent study. This is information that Indiana Department of Environmental Management collects. But if you go through the right number of clicks on the computer, it's right there in the, in the information that is collected by our own Department of Environmental Management. They would like to see this pollution stop. They need more funding and they need more support in order to do that. But they do generate the information that tells us about this. And if you look at those sources, uh, the, the 12 most important sources of pollutants for rivers, about three of them are directly related to livestock grazing. Actually, the one responsible for the least number of river miles polluted is so-called concentrated animal feeding operations. That means you take you take livestock from a bunch of places, you put them in a small area, you feed them to get them to the con- to the, to the weight that you want to use. Those are places where a lot of pollution is in a small area. Recently, those have been begun to be regulated. Can you talk a little bit about microplastics? Is that something that's in central Indiana water? Is that something that people should be concerned about? We know so little about some of these pollutants that we didn't have any way to judge how much of them are in the water of Indiana. The the one class I've already mentioned, these PFAS or PFOAO pollutants, um, those are in the news now, and they're, they're extremely harmful. But there's lots of other things we've done Uh, and that we're doing in our industrial lives that create pollutants. Microplastics is one of them. Microplastics is the beginning of the breaking down of all of the things that we use that are plastic. And we have so much of it in so much of the world that all of us, all the animals and all the people in the world have microplastics or residues from them in our bodies. You can measure them. And the effects of those, we're only beginning to know, and they probably aren't good. It seems difficult to figure out what regulations should be if we don't even know how what's in our water affects us. So where do you start with that? How do you make common sense regulations when you don't have the information about how the things in our water affect us? It's really the central reason that the Environmental Protection Agency hasn't been able to set standards until very recently for these PFAS pollutants. Anytime they take a new pollutant and they try to say how much of it is harmful in in water, for the Safe Drinking Water Act, for example, Um, How much of it is harmful? Uh, If they choose a level that's too low, everybody that wants to use that chemical will sue them because they chose a level that the chemical or or the industrial or the the human, other other human uses we have for these chemicals become more expensive or, or impossible. If they set a standard that's too high, those of us who are concerned about the impact uh, of, of that amount on our health might sue them saying, wait, you didn't follow the science that told you that this amount, the amount that you said is the limit was, was, was too high and it's dangerous for us. So they, they, they try and try to get the science to the point where they think they can defend a lawsuit from either side. And it's really hard when you're talking about new pollutants because we don't have that much experience with them because scientists disagree. And so it comes down in some respects to a philosophy about about how important the use is and how important the possible effect on our, on our health is. And that is sort of the essence of a difficult political and, and practical choice if you're an environmental regulator. So what's the answer? 
And the answer is to invest seriously in the studies that we need to come up with really defensible answers and implement them. There's one thing that's really kind of curious about this, by the way, and it sort of underlies your question. The United States have, has a law called the Safe Drinking Water Act that's supposed to make sure that the, act, that the water that we drink from even very small public water sources is safe. Um, and they have two standards in the Safe Drinking Water Act. The first one is the goal. And the goal for something like lead in the Safe Drinking Water Act is zero. They said there isn't any amount of lead in water that's actually safe. But then they set another goal. And they set another goal that considers the cost of bringing a pollutant down to the level that they know is safe and the, the risk of having some of that pollutant in the water. And that level for lead is not zero. They've said, and we know, that no lead is safe, but the standards for lead in public drinking water incorporate a, an amount of lead, where they try to balance the cost of bringing lead down to zero against the benefit of, of having cheaper water or against the benefit of having, of having absolutely clean water. And it's a hard, hard thing to do because people pay for water. If, if it's more expensive to produce it, it's more expensive for people. That hurts poorer people the most, uh, even though those are the same people that are likely to hurt, be hurt the most by having a pollutant in it. So it's a very hard thing that they have to do in order to decide what these levels are. And the only solution is for us to commit to doing everything we can to know all we need to know about them and then boldly go forward and set standards that keep us safe. Next, we'll hear from Dr. Indra Frank, the Environmental Health Director with the Hoosier Environmental Council. Dr. Frank discusses common pollutants, how water sources are regulated, and what we can do as individuals to protect them. My name is Indra Frank. I'm the Director of Environmental Health and Water Policy for the Hoosier Environmental Council. Uh, I came to this as a second career. I'm a physician, and my first career was in the hospital laboratories as a pathologist. Uh, and then I decided to shift gears, and in 2004, I went into environmental health, um, which means all of the ways that environmental problems are also human health problems. So I've been working in the not-for-profit sector and in education on environmental health ever since. Today, Taz and I would like to talk to you about what is in our source water so our source waters in Indiana include both the water that's on the surface, like our lakes, our reservoirs, and our rivers, but it also includes our groundwater. Um, that's the underground water that you tap into when you have a well. Uh, when you're talking about surface water, the pollutant that's the biggest problem for Indiana right now is E. coli. And E. coli, that's, the, that's a gut bacterium comes from people, it also comes from animals. Most of the wastewater from people goes through some kind of treatment. Before the Clean Water Act, maybe not so much, but most of it goes through either a wastewater treatment plant or through a septic system. And that helps to reduce the bacteria and pathogens that are in that water, and then the water that comes out of that treatment process is much cleaner. For our animals, of course, we don't have that. For, for livestock that are raised for agriculture, um, that manure is usually used as a fertilizer. Um, so it's added to the soil. It's a good fertilizer if it's used in the right quantities. If it's applied right before a rainstorm, it can get washed off into the waterway. Or if it's applied in too great a quantity and the soil can't soak it all in, we can wind up with it in our waters. 
So you talked about the Clean Water Act um, and how that helped clean up our water. We are now at a point where our water is cleaner. However, we do still have an E. coli problem. Is that somewhere where regulations are falling short? I think it's fair to say that the Clean Water Act has done a lot of good. I mean, here in Indiana, um, we have a lot less in the way of industrial waste and sewage going into our rivers and streams. It's fantastic. But there are some challenges that the Clean Water Act hasn't done enough on. The biggest one is that the Clean Water Act doesn't really cover runoff pollution very well. If there's a pipe that's discharging pollutants, you have to go get a Clean Water Act permit first, and it it's going to limit what you can discharge out of that pipe. But if the pollution is just being picked up as the rain runs across a parking lot or across a field, and then that rain makes its way into a stream, the Clean Water Act um, isn't really strong on, on that kind of pollution. Who is impacted by water quality or lack of water quality in Indiana? Well, water quality impacts everybody, right? All of our our drinking water is potentially impacted when our waters are impacted. The drinking water systems that supply water to taps, like in our cities and towns, you know, for people who don't have private wells, those drinking water systems have to deal with whatever's in the river or the reservoir or the groundwater before they can send that water out through the pipes. So when the groundwater or the river or lake water has pollutants in it, those drinking water systems have to do more treatment. It becomes more costly. You know, the rates go up for everyone who's paying for their drinking water bill. The quality of our waters also can have an impact on businesses. There are businesses that actually specifically locate to places that have sufficient water supplies and sufficient water supplies that are clean enough. And then, of course, when it comes to recreation, wanting to go canoeing or swimming or uh, fishing, the quality of the water has an impact as well. Is there anything in our water that isn't regulated that we should be concerned about? I think we've been talking a lot about PFAS or microplastics, maybe even pharmaceuticals. So I'm afraid there are a lot of things that wind up in water that aren't don't have regulation or don't have regulation yet. For instance, the United States has a law called the Safe Drinking Water Act. The Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, is in charge of implementing that Safe Drinking Water Act. They have a list of all the things that our drinking water has to get checked for. So if you're receiving water at your home from a public drinking water system, it has to get checked for that whole list. Mm-hmm. And the EPA gradually assesses new chemicals as they come to light to decide whether to add them to that list or not. The EPA is very careful about assessing new chemicals before adding them to the list. And that can mean that there is a time delay between when that chemical becomes an issue and when the EPA actually adds it to the list for regulation. PFAS is one of those. The EPA is still working on what to do about these chemicals PFAS stands for the perfluorinated chemicals. Um, It's a whole family of chemicals that make up coatings and stain-resistant chemicals like for fabrics or carpets. Um, It gets used for a lot of different things. And, yeah, it's not a good idea for those to get into the water. They are getting into the water, and EPA hasn't regulated it yet for drinking water. Can you talk about coal ash and its role in water quality or lack thereof? So, yeah, at the Hoosier Environmental Council, we work on a number of different things that are challenges for Indiana's waterways. One is manure, and we also work on coal ash. 
and that's the material that's left after you burn coal. Indiana has depended on coal for many decades, and as a result, we actually have millions of tons of this ash left over. Unfortunately, the ash has heavy metals in it that can contaminate water. Usually what happens is that either the coal ash is wet or you know, it gets rained on, and that water trickles down and soaks into the groundwater. So every place that we have coal ash stored in Indiana where it doesn't have a liner underneath it, we have contaminated groundwater. There are even places in the state where the local utility has had to um, replace drinking water for people whose wells were contaminated. Yeah, it's important that we get safer disposal of our coal ash, that we dispose of it so that it's not in contact with water. Um, and the, the best things to do with it are either incorporated into cement where the, the toxic thing, contaminants are locked away or put it in a landfill that's on high ground that has, that's appropriately engineered. So it has a liner underneath it, has a cover over it so that the coal ash stays dry. One of the other guests we've talked to talked a lot about how regulations are the solution for these types of problems. Is this somewhere where we should be pushing for more regulation? Is there regulation that exists around coal ash? There is a federal rule for coal ash, and it's a good thing. It doesn't solve 100% of the problem. But that federal rule regarding coal ash disposal didn't come around until 2015. Prior to 2015, coal ash was exempt from most waste handling laws, which meant that the utilities did what was least expensive with it, right? They're also under pressure to keep electricity rates low. Um, so for the most part, they put it into pits that were right next to the power plants. Unfortunately, the power plants had to be close to waterways in order to have cooling water. So most of our coal ash is actually located in the floodplain of rivers or Lake Michigan. One of uh, the guests that we had seemed to have a very optimistic perspective on where things were headed. I'm curious what your outlook is on the future. I guess I have a both I have a mix of optimism and worry. And maybe it depends on which day you catch me. <laughs> <laughs> Preach. <laughs> um, well, and also which topic we're talking about. One of the things that I worry about is water policy for our state. Right now at our state house, there's a lot of concern that regulations can interfere with business and interfere with the economy. There needs to be more understanding of the ways in which regulation is beneficial, that it ensures that things are safer, that waterways are, are protected when they need to be, uh, that drinking water sources are, are clean enough. Those are the kind of things that can only happen when society as a whole looks at an issue, right? If we go back to that example of the utilities, well, each utility was doing what was least expensive with their coal ash because they were also under pressure to keep their electricity rates low, right? If you have a regulation, that applies to all of the utilities in a blanket fashion so there isn't this competition between them to, to hold back on expenses. And the same can be true for, for regulation of, of other industries or other activities, right? If it applies to everybody evenly, then it's not an economic disadvantage to one entity over another. And along with that, we've, we've seen in the last couple of years attempts to reduce protection of some of our waterways, in particular the floodplains and the wetlands. We need our wetlands and we need our floodplains. 
These are areas that can soak up excess stormwater when there's excess, and that reduces flooding downstream. And while they're allowing that stormwater to sit in the wetland or in the, in the floodplain, it's soaking in and recharging groundwater. It's undergoing a purification process. Wetlands help purify water. And wetlands and floodplains are also rich habitat for wildlife. And unfortunately, we're seeing reductions in, in the laws in Indiana that protect those those entities. They shared a worry. Do you have something you're optimistic about? <laughs> we have leaders in the state that recognize that we need to have in-depth conversations about this. The Indiana legislature set up a wetland task force that is made up of stakeholders from all different perspectives when it comes to wetlands. Really knowledgeable people who right now are going through a series of in-depth discussions. So very hopeful about that process. And then uh, after the wetlands task force, there's going to be a drainage task force. So we have leaders in the state who know that these topics really need in-depth discussion. The Clean Water Act is turning 50 this year, and that's a good time to kind of reassess and say, okay, so how much progress have we made and how much more progress do we need to make? So my hope is that we'll, we'll actually take a look at the persistence of the E. coli problem, for example, and we'll take a look at, at some of those new chemicals that aren't regulated yet, and we'll continue to make progress on our, on our water quality. Now we will turn to Dan Moran, the Director of Water Quality System Control and Planning at Citizens Energy Group. We discuss how a major urban utility company confronts the challenges we heard about in the first part of this episode. So I'm Dan Moran, the Director of Water Quality for Citizens Energy Group. Our first question for you is, very basic, what do you do here? So we are uh, sitting at the White River Treatment Plant. This is our largest treatment plant in the system uh, that serves the Indianapolis area. Uh, and this facility uh, treats water ultimately from the White River to produce finished drinking water that is delivered to customers in Indianapolis. And uh, this plant produces uh, roughly half of the water for the Indianapolis area. The water that goes to somebody's house, like the drinking water, is that different than the water that, say, comes out of your garden hose or is in your toilet, or is it all the same water? No, it is really all the same water. And, uh, you know, the way to think about it from the utility standpoint is we're assuming that every drop that's produced, somebody is consuming. So that is our threshold and what we control all of our processes on, but really only a very small fraction of that water is actually consumed. We do have uh, all of the regulations on providing tap water to customers are all based on drinking water criteria. So what are you taking out of the water? If you think about it, the, the source that we're starting with here at this plant is the White River. Basically everything that you can think of that uh, might be in the White River is are things that we're focused on. I usually think of four primary things that we deal with in water. Um, first off, there's just dirt in the water. So there's solids, uh, whether that's silts or sediment that's in the river. If you take a glass of river water, it's gonna look brown. And obviously people expect the water coming out of their taps to be clear. So we need to remove all of that material. Um, 
Obviously, there can be microorganisms in that river water. So as you can imagine, whatever animals living in the water or there, uh, you know, different things that can cause microorganisms in the water. So in the treatment process, have multiple barriers built in to make sure we eliminate any of those microorganisms and remove them. So um, from filtering to chlorine disinfection and even ultraviolet light disinfection to uh, sort of have a belt and suspenders approach to, to making sure that there's none of those organisms are in the water. A third category would be different organic compounds can be in the water. Those can be natural organic compounds, which might be things like leaves that have decay and kind of give a, some color to the water. So those are decay material or different organics that can react with things in the treatment process. So we want to take out those types of compounds, but there can also be some organic compounds that are maybe more problematic even. You know, we have agriculture in the watershed, uh, things that get applied to farms, whether those are herbicides or things like that. Uh, we do a lot of monitoring for those compounds. We can feed a, what is a powdered activated carbon to remove those kind of compounds from the water. Then the last probably category would be inorganic compounds that we're trying to control through the process. So those are things that have been in the media like, you know, lead in the water, or it could be iron, which can make the water get a brown color to it. So in a big picture, those are the four kind of categories, the dirt, microorganisms, organics, and inorganics. So what like are the top contaminants that you see? You know, on a day-to-day -day basis, obviously bacteria is something that we would find in our the raw water supply on a regular basis. So again, we're assuming all the time that those bacteria are present. And some bacteria, there's bacteria all over in the environment, and there's a lot of them that we live with and don't cause any problem, but there are others that can cause illness. So that's definitely a focus. Do you see a lot of changes in what's in the water based on like the season or weather or even like activities? that are happening in the urban area? Um, you know, definitely seasonally, we go through certain patterns. The, obviously, just from a plain water temperature standpoint, you know, the water coming into the treatment process in the deep part of the winter here can be very cold, basically right at 32 degrees coming in. And the other time of year when we really gear up for some additional monitoring and uh, reviewing of from a water quality standpoint is in the spring and early summer. And a lot of that is due to the potential, the higher potential for runoff from the various agricultural fields. Uh, that's when there's a lot of activity in farm fields with preparing for the crops. So application of fertilizers and herbicides and pesticides. So we have a much uh, more intensive monitoring during that time of year. And the other, in addition to those kind of compounds that we watch for running off of the agricultural fields, there's also been in the media around the country at different times, uh, uh, you know, the impacts from algae growth. And that can be through the whole summer, even into the fall, where we monitor for the different types of algae. And the history that we've had in Indianapolis is we've been susceptible to algae blooms that can cause uh, taste and odor into the water, like an earthy, musty taste. And that is actually caused by 
a couple of specific compounds that certain algae can produce. And those that cause that earthy, musty taste are not hazardous. They don't have any health effects in any way, but certain algae can also produce compounds that can be toxic. Certain lakes in the Midwest have had those issues, but we do a lot of monitoring for those compounds as well, and, and fortunately have not seen those compounds to any significant degree in our supplies. And we have, again, barriers in the treatment process if we do see those kind of compounds. How many pipes are there that you have for water? Within our system, so serving Indianapolis and some of the communities around Indianapolis, we have about 4,500 miles of pipe. You can imagine if we stacked all that pipe together, that's enough pipe to go from here to Los Angeles and back. Because those pipes you know, go down every street and every block of all of the areas that are served by the water system. So it is a lot of infrastructure, you know, and that ties to some of the questions about the cost of the system. And we don't have to pay to take water out of the White River, but there's costs in treating that water. But then really a lot of the bigger cost is just in all of that infrastructure. So the pipes and equipment to be able to deliver to every home and every address throughout the system. There's been a lot of news recently that I've been reading about like PFAS chemicals and also microplastics. And I'm just curious if you can speak about either of those. There's a lot of research still going on in some of those areas. So related to the PFAS chemicals, when these first started to get some attention, there was a, it was actually a rule that one of the ways that the EPA tries to get a sense for what is out there is through what's called the unregulated contaminant monitoring rule. And that is for compounds that aren't regulated yet. And they basically put a schedule and they say, go sample for these things just to gather information to see what's out there. So we did that, I think it was 2015. We sampled multiple times from all of our plants. So this is on the finished water side. And at that time, uh, I think a total of 26 samples from the different plants and multiple times at our larger plants. And we did not have any detections of any of those compounds. What has changed since then and where there's further research is at that time, you know, the best technology to test could only detect down to a certain level. And as time goes on, technology improves and you can detect to lower and lower and lower levels. So there currently is an ongoing effort by the state in Indiana to do another survey using some of those more advanced methods that can even detect down to lower levels. So we don't have that data available yet. From what is being seen in other locations, once you get down to a low enough level, some of those compounds are seen almost everywhere. The health advisory level that the EPA put out, again, some time ago, was higher than, what, than the detection limit that we had in 2015. So we know we're not above those health advisory levels but there's ongoing research on that topic and the expectation is that the advisory levels in the future are gonna to continue to get lower. You know, really, I think there's a societal determination that needs to be made about should, should these, they were produced and used in a whole lot of products and ultimately when that happens, they get into the environment and, uh, you know, the question is, can we restrict what's going into the environment a little bit more? Because it's, uh, those are really challenging problems if you need to try to take it out later.
We rely on clean water in our homes every day. Considerable time, money, and science go into making sure it comes ready to use. Follow along this season of the Collective Tap as we dip further into some of the challenges we face in providing clean water for everyone. Still to come this season, we confront the water affordability crisis and equity issues that are already being felt in some communities. We will also explore what it means to lose access to water and follow Taz and Devon as they try to reduce their own water usage. The Collective Tap is a project of the White River Alliance, a 501c3 organization located in Indianapolis, Indiana. We are an alliance of diverse interests and organizations that work together to steward the river and its watershed. It is made possible with generous funding from the Nina Mason Pulliam Charitable Trust. If you want to learn more, visit us at thecollectivetap.com or at thewhiteriveralliance.org. Produced in partnership with Absorb.